Our topic, I am the door. This is Jesus' statement from John, and our text is John 10, 7 to 10, continuing where we left off. Uh, I came back from California, had a wonderful time. It's very beautiful, but very pagan. Uh, and this is just an amazing section of scripture. I am the door. I'm going to read uh, up to at least uh, verse 10. I am the good shepherd. Most assuredly, I say unto you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. <clears throat> but he who enters the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Now, this is verse 7, this is the beginning of our text. And we're only going to be looking at about four verses today. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. <clears throat> All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep do not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life, and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives us life for the sheep, but a hireling, he, uh, he is not the shepherd. <coughs> One who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf scatters the sheep and scatter, uh, catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore the Father loves me, because I lay my life down, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. We'll stop there. That's verse 18. One of the most, uh, an amazing section of scripture. <clears throat> in the first section, which we've already considered, which formed its own allegory in verses 1 through 5, the Pharisees and their followers did not understand our Lord's illustration. This does not Jesus deter Jesus from pressing the point further. For the sake of those listening, and of course especially for his disciples, Christ explains further and amplifies or expands on the previous allegory. Okay, this is an amazing section of scripture. He, he, he keeps repeating himself in a sense with slightly different emphasis and bringing in new teachings, but he's focusing on the same things over and over again, giving new information as he does so. He begins with an, the introductory formula, amen, amen, and then makes a bold and amazing statement about himself in verse 7. Then Jesus said to them again, most assuredly, or amen, amen, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. 
the statement is easy to understand and it's explicit. There's no reason why anyone should misunderstand it unless they are spiritually blind. And the Greek, the statement in Greek is emphatic. I alone am the door of the sheep. There is one legitimate, lawful way to be saved and enter the kingdom of God. If one is to be a sheep of Christ and to be truly saved, sanctified, fed, and cared for, one must believe in Christ as he is revealed in the scripture. That's very easy to understand. Christ is the only way to the Father. Justification, reconciliation, sanctification, the resurrection unto eternal life and glorification all come solely from Christ. Therefore, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Here's what Charles Hodge says. Paul's only design in going to Corinth was to preach Christ. And Christ not as a teacher, or as an example, or as a perfect man, or as a new starting point in the development of the race, all this would be mere philosophy. But Christ as crucified, as dying for our sins, Christ as a propitiation was the burden of Paul's preaching. It has been well remarked that Jesus Christ refers to the person of Christ and him crucified. To his work, which constitutes the sum of the gospel. Now in John 14, 6, 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. <clears throat> and Peter preached in Acts 4.12, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then, of course, 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. There's one way of salvation. There's one Savior, there's one Lord, one Christ. There's only one way to God the Father, there's only one way to heaven, and that's Jesus Christ as he is revealed in the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 and 45. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all, that is all who belong to him covenantally, shall be made alive. The first man became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now we see in this statement a few things that radically separate biblical Christianity from all other religions or philosophies. In all other religion there is someone or a group of men who supposedly either discern truths about God, for example the scribes and Pharisees, or have been privy to some new information about God or the path of enlightenment. In other words, they claim some form of direct revelation. There's Muhammad. <coughs> and of course, enlightenment would be, and techniques would be the Eastern religions. You achieve nirvana, you achieve somadhi, you, you achieve cosmic bliss through meditation and chanting and so forth, uh, which are their version of works, therefore their version of mysticism. 
There is Muhammad, Joseph Smith, Buddha, and so on. But these are mere sinful men who supposedly have received revelations, or in the case of Buddha, has achieved nirvana, cosmic bliss, and he wants to tell us about it. Okay, the Eightfold Path and all these things, you know, these ethical principles of, uh, of Buddha and uh, his path of meditation and all this. It's just a guy with interesting ideas. He's not God. He doesn't have any direct revelation. It's a philosophy. Aside from the fact that all these men were deceived and taught a system of demonic lies, their persons were not essential to salvation. God could pick anyone to receive a prophetic message. God could pick anyone to receive divine revelation, you know, prior to the close of the canon, obviously. The canon's been closed. People are not receiving direct revelations anymore. It just happened to be them. God chose them. At the very most, one could argue that they had a prophetic gift. But none of these men, however, had authenticating sign gifts and their teachings explicitly contradict Scripture. You know, you remember Deuteronomy 13. Uh, how do we know a false prophet? Well, one thing is uh, what he says doesn't come to pass. So all these charismatics on television are obviously false prophets. The 700 Club and all these uh, uh, heretics. And, of course, does their theology comport with Scripture? Does it agree? Are they teaching something different than what God says? And if they do, then obviously they're false prophets. They're false teachers. But with Jesus Christ, the founder of biblical Christianity, we have someone totally unique. Jesus did not merely claim to know the truth, but was truth itself. He did not merely claim how to know how to get to God. He was God. He was the door. He did not simply tell men what to do to get saved. In his own person, he died a bloody sacrificial death on the cross and eliminated his people, the sheep, the elect, their sins and guilt in full and rose from the dead, conquering death and the curse itself. So in biblical Christianity, if there is no Jesus and no cross and empty tomb, there is no way to God. There is no way to be saved. There is no way to eliminate the guilt and penalty of sin. There is no way to go to heaven apart from Jesus Christ. There is no gate to heaven. There is no deliverance from Satan, sin, and death. We must emphatically reject the idea that all religions lead to God. That is a blasphemous lie of the devil. And it's very popular because we live in a pluralistic society where everybody's told to accept everybody else. So all religions are said to be true. And uh, George Bush and uh, politicians, like that, that, that uh, meeting he had, uh, after 9-11, where he had a, uh, a Buddhist and an Indian shaman and, a, and uh, Hindus and Muslims and everybody on stage showing his pluralism and his respect, uh, that was idolatry and that was blasphemous. For only Christ is the way to heaven, and only God, <clears throat> Yahweh, who gave us Christ, the Bible and sent Christ to earth, that's the true living God. Jesus the Messiah, and only Jesus who died and rose again, leads us to God and opens the door to the kingdom of God in heaven. Our Lord's allegory here reflects the teaching, his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, where the straight gate 
and narrow way immediately precedes the warning against false prophets and ravenous wolves. And then we come to verses 7 and 8. All that came before me. He's going to talk about the ravenous wolves. He's going to talk about false teachers. In verses 7 and 8, we have an explanation and expansion on verses 1 and 2. Verse 8 returns to the theme of false teachers. All whoever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. The word all is, of course, restricted to false shepherds. It doesn't refer to the true prophets of God. It doesn't refer to Moses. It doesn't refer to Isaiah and Jeremiah or Amos. It refers to false teachers, false shepherds. It obviously does not refer to the Old Testament prophets or John the Baptist. Jesus is referring to the scribes and Pharisees and any religious leaders who reject Christ and deny the gospel. Now we ask, why does Jesus use such strong language here? It's very, very strong language. Very, very strong. Their identification as thieves and robbers is shocking. And there are other passages in the Gospels that shed light on this language. In Luke 11.52 we read, Woe to you, lawyers or scribes, for you have taken the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who are entering in, you hindered. As the teachers of the Jews, as teachers of what is supposed to be the true religion, they held the keys. But they taught a false way of salvation, and thus locked the door to the true way to God. They were robbing men of the gospel. They were robbing men of Christ. They were robbing men of heaven. They closed the door to heaven to their followers by their heresies. The parallel passage in Matthew 23, 13 says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. You see, the scribes and Pharisees were thieves. For the held positions, they were unfit to hold. Now, obviously, you can apply that to them uh, getting rich off religion, and, and, and like these shysters today, like uh, Joel Olstein and those kind of people uh, as well. They were thieves in that they robbed men of the truth necessary for salvation. They were thieves in that they were uh, used religion for self-advancement and profit. They are robbers because they used coercion and violence to support their false heretical position. The difference between a thief and a robber, the, the, the term robber emphasizes the use of force and violence. You know, you're on the road, they come, they knock you off your donkey, beat you up. The New Testament abounds with warnings and severe denunciations against false teachers. In Matthew 23, uh, 14, 15, we read this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. You travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Any teacher 
who points men and women and children away from Jesus Christ as he is defined as he is defined in scripture is the same as these scribes and pharisees evil wicked the pharisees turned gentle proselytes into legalists who rejected sovereign grace they opened wide the gates of hell when John the Baptist saw the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to him for baptism, he said to them, Matthew 3, 7, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath of come, to come. And he wouldn't baptize them. He demanded fruits, proof of repentance. Show me that you've repented. Show me that you've had a change of mind about God and about the law and about Christ. Show me. Paul warned the Corinthians about false teachers saying, 2 Corinthians 11.13 For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And Peter agrees, saying, 2 Peter 2.17 They are wells without water, clouds carried about with a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Have you ever met anyone who changes his doctrinal position every year or two? from one heresy to another, floating about. One minute they're into full preterism. The next minute they become an Arminian. Then they may accept uh, Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy. Uh, I've seen that with theonomists. I've seen that with people. I know a guy who was in the free church, which, which I believe now is free continuing, church continuing, who became a Roman Catholic. In Jude, verses... 12 and 13 we read, They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, laid autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. What a strong warning in agreement with Christ. Men who do not preach Christ crucified are the doctrines of sovereign grace, nicknamed Calvinism. It's, that's a nickname. It's unfortunate. Some say Augustinianism. Some say Calvinism. It's a nickname. But it, we simply mean the true gospel of sovereign grace. God actually saves sinners through Christ. Are vile, deadly, false t prophets, false teachers. They have brought nothing but darkness and heresy into churches. They have helped send millions of blind fools into the pit of hell. I'll never forget when I was first becoming a Calvinist in the 1970s. And I didn't know anything about Calvinist churches. This was through studying B.B. Uh, uh, Warfield. And I was first becoming a Calvinist. And so we'd have these Bible studies and we'd have these Christian groups in these big evangelical churches. And I'd bring up the teachings of sovereign grace that I had learned through study. And what was the response? I was thrown out of Bible studies. I was told to shut up or get out. That's how evangelicals treat the true gospel. Most evangelicals. In Matthew seven fifteen, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. On the outside, they may appear very pious, 
They may appear to be true teachers, very nice and gentle and loving. But that's not what they are because they're preaching lies of the devil. They're dangerous. They're deadly. All who come into the visible church who do not preach the biblical Christ or the true gospel are vicious wolves and deceivers. They come to men supposedly preaching life and salvation, but instead bring death, destruction, and damnation. Hey, it's one thing if you get a bad plumber. It's one thing if you get a bad contractor. It's one thing if a guy comes over and he does a lousy job mowing your lawn. But you don't want to make mistakes regarding Christ in the Bible or God. Anyone who raises doubts about the veracity of Scripture or the literal history of Jesus dying on the cross for sin and rising from the dead is a satanic false prophet. They're like the devil who said to Eve, Genesis 3, 1, did God really say? Oh, come on, Eve. God wouldn't say that. You can't trust that. You want to go to human autonomy. Anyone who says that something must be <clears throat> added onto the work of Christ to be saved, whether an autonomous act of the free will, as an Arminianism, or good works, uh, as Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and the Federal Vision, or Covenant Faithfulness, the Federal Vision, is a demonic wolf. Christ alone, by faith alone, grace alone. Anyone who says that all religions lead to God, if we are sincere in following that religion, is a theological thief and robber. And by the way, the Roman Catholic Catechism came out in 1994, uh, flat out says in there, if you're sincere in your religious beliefs, you will go to heaven, whether you are a Christian or not. That is totally satanic. Any who, anyone who adds new doctrines or revelations to the complete canon of Scripture is a false shepherd, a servant of the devil. The whole Jewish religion and political hierarchy of Jesus' day was doing everything in their power, both by teaching and by coercion, to turn the people away from Jesus the Messiah, the only Savior of men. And we remember the context, which we discussed last time we met. The blind man was excommunicated simply for saying, hey, I know I was blind, Jesus really healed me. And a false teacher cannot do such signs. They wanted him to condemn Jesus, and he wouldn't do it, and he was excommunicated. When men refused to enter by the one door, Jesus Christ, and seek some other way, good works, meditation, works of the law, gifts to charity, they're false shepherds. They're thieves and robbers. They're like Satan who appears as an angel of light with talk of love, community, hope, Salvation and blessings. But they teach satanic laws and they take men straight to hell. The liberal denominations that have rejected the inerrancy of Scripture, that Scripture is inspired by God and it's infallible, without error, in everything it teaches, whether history, spiritual matters, or law, or ethics, or whatever, 
science? Yes, it's accurate in science. Modern science is not accurate. The Bible is accurate. It's no accident that those same people teach sodomite marriage, that homosexuality is wonderful, that abortion, where people murder innocent unborn babies, is good, and they support Democrats who are nothing but thieves and liars. There's no accident that they're that way, because they they follow Satan, their father, their covenantal father. And then we come to the climax of the passage. I am the door. In verses 9 and 10, Jesus repeats that he is the door with some additions and clarifications. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. The, The importance and exclusivity of the one door is emphasized. A teacher who's a good teacher, who has really important things to say, he's going to repeat those things. He's going to emphasize those things, and that's exactly what Jesus does. What was implied in verse 7 is now stated explicitly. Jesus and only Jesus is the one who enables persons to be saved from their sin and guilt and possess eternal life. You want your sins forgiven? You want your guilt removed? Washed away? You have to go to Christ. The words by me are in the emphatic position. He's emphasizing himself as the only way. Christ is emphasizing that he alone is the way of salvation. Faith in Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, the Lord and Savior of planet Earth. The only substitutionary atonement that eliminates sin and guilt for his sheep is the only way to salvation and reconciliation with God. Jesus says that if by me anyone enters, he will be saved. And the term is explained in verse 10. He gives life. He gives spiritual life. He gives eternal life. He gives life everlasting. He gives glorified life. What Adam failed to do, Jesus accomplished by fulfilling the covenant of works, obeying the law in exhaustive detail, and dying on the cross as a sacrifice for sin, rising from the dead, victorious over Satan, sin, and death. Jesus assumes, of course, the biblical world and life view that all men have sinned in Adam and have sinned personally by violating God's moral law throughout throughout their lives. We have a dark, wicked record of sin and rebellion against God. Paul says, There is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.10. 3.19, both Jews and Greeks, all are under sin. Romans 3.9, excuse me. And all the world is guilty before God. Romans 3.19. Both Jews and Gentiles are under guilt, the guilt and penalty of sin. And there's only one way out. There's only one way of salvation, and that is Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Because of the fall and our own mountain of sins, we all have this horrible, terrifying problem of sin, guilt, and damnation. Everybody. You have a problem. You have a guilty record before God. You have a corrupt heart that hates the truth. You need to be saved. We are all under the curse of God's moral law. But Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, 
Galatians 3.13, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He hung on the cross to eliminate that curse. The false prophet or false teachers? False teachers are again contrasted with Jesus, the true shepherd. The false shepherd is not really interested in this sheep's spiritual welfare, but is selfish and only cares about himself. He is not interested in Christ or the true doctrine of salvation, but only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. If a man preaches false teachings, false doctrines, that are committed to self-salvation and human autonomy, he robs the people of salvation and the abundant life that only Jesus can bring. It's a really a tragic thing to see people, whether Jews or Muslims or Hindus or Buddhists or whatever, who are extremely active and dedicated to their lives. It's, it's, it's so tragic. Think of the great harm that false teachers have done among present Christians. The papal church kept the people for centuries, many centuries, out of the Bible, out of people's hands for many centuries. It was illegal to have a Bible and read it. If they did, they would be committed. Uh, if they read the Bible, they would understand that what the Catholic Church was teaching was a bunch of lies. Men who taught the true way of salvation who wanted the people to read the Bible in their own language were mercilessly persecuted, tortured, and murdered. The papal church even took up arms against the Protestants to defend their damnable heresies and ecclesiastical slavery. The Council of Trent, which I, I imagine is around 1550, right around in there, uh, flat out says that justification by faith alone and by Christ alone is a false doctrine. That's what the Catholics say. They deny the gospel explicitly. Therefore, they are a false church. They are not true Christians. If, they are, if there are true Christians in the Roman Catholic Church, it is because they do not believe the Roman Catholic doctrines. They are inconsistent with what their church teaches. They imitated the Pharisaical Jewish teachers who excommunicated two Christians in their midst and then began to murder and persecute them to the ends of the earth. False prophets are idolaters who love money and power and thus do everything in their power to maintain it. Arminian preachers and communions do not kill Calvinists or true Christians because the civil magistrate does not permit it. But they do hate and persecute them. Go to an Arminian church, go to Sunday school and start teaching Calvinism and see how long before they kick you out. It won't be long. And they'll warn the people against what you taught because they teach a false gospel. The great doctrines of sovereign grace are anathema to them. And this teaching is so, so important, especially in our day. We live in an age where false teachers and false doctrines are in the vast majority all around us. We are also in the midst of professing Christians who view doctrines as really not that important at all. Doctrines not considered important. It is a place, but it is secondary to, quote, practical concerns. I've even heard Reformed preachers say nonsense like this. 
you know, doctrine. Without true doctrine, you cannot have true praxis. You cannot have true life. You cannot have true sanctification without true doctrine. They go together. There is also, this is also the time of pluralism. And Christians boast of their being, their loving ecumenical spirit. All sorts of deadly and dangerous errors are tolerated in the name of Christian love and friendship. The land is filled with new and old heresies, dressed up to look like new. They're new. And the people that have itching ears and virtually no knowledge of sound doctrine embrace these lies. They rush headlong like dumb beasts to sit under the ministries of thieves and wolves. Thieves and wolves have the largest churches, and they grow rich, doling out their doctrinal poison. Look at these. Look at Kenneth, Kenneth Copeland and the prosperity preachers. Kenneth Copeland's worth like $50 million. I've, well, I've heard anywhere, I've heard 100 to 200 million. These people are all rich, preaching lies. But note, beloved, how radically different is the mind of Christ on this issue. And of course, he's radically different than most professing Christians today. Jesus testifies against false teachers with a sober vehemence and strongness of speech that is shocking in effect and sobering to enlightened minds. We are told by the Savior himself to view them as just as evil as murderers, thieves, and destroyers. Why does Jesus take this issue so seriously? Why does he warn us so strongly? Well, one reason is that, obviously, is that he loves us and he cares for us. And he does not regard what the ignorant masses believe or what the world says at all. He gives us the uncompromising, unadulterated truth because it's, that is precisely what we need. A second reason lies in the danger and destruction that false teachers bring. Think of the hundreds of, literally, hundreds of millions of people living in darkness due to the teaching of Roman Catholicism or the Babylonian Talmud, or Muhammad, or Joseph Smith, and the many cults. There's over a there's like over a billion Roman Catholics. There's like a billion Muslims. Over a billion. These people do not have the abundant life, and they will go straight to hell the moment they die, because they sit under and embrace false teachers. They sit under savage wolves, robbers, liars, spiritual murderers. When they go to church, they are not, or synagogue, they are not taught and pointed to the true Christ as he's revealed in the scriptures, but are fed a diet of deadly poison, dressed up, pious-sounding religiosity. Thus we must pay close attention, very close attention to Jesus and, of course, Paul who says, Colossians 2.8, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through Philosophy, and he means human philosophy, and empty deceit, according to the traditions of men, according to the principles of this world. Marx, Hegel, Kant, Schleiermacher, Kierkegaard, Karl Barth, Brunner. These are just human philosophies dressed up with religious language. They're false prophets. Muhammad the Talmud. 
it teaches people to be blind. It, it reinforces their ignorance and blindness and darkness of soul. In verse 10, the ministry of Jesus is set in contrast to the false shepherds. He comes that a sheep may have life and have it more abundantly. These are crucial words that merit close attention. And once again, we know Jesus likes to repeat himself for emphasis with bringing in new teachings or different emphasis. Jesus came to pay the full price for sin and to earn eternal life for his people by a perfect and perpetual obedience to God's moral law, a perfect positive righteousness, the robes of righteousness. God removes our filthy robes and clothes us with the righteousness of Christ. The guilt and curse of sin is completely eliminated for the sheep by Jesus' vicarious suffering on the cross. Ephesians 1.7 says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Colossians 1.19-20 says, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Colossians 1.14 Through him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Romans 3.25 God set forth Jesus as a propitiation by his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness. Romans 5.9 God demonstrated his own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't look down and say, oh, look, what a good person Joe is. What a good person Bob is. I think I'm going to save them because they're so good and wonderful. No, he looked down at rotten, filthy sinners who hated him, who had a, a record of guilt and damnation hanging over their heads, and he saved them by Christ. Hebrews 9, 26 and 28, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifices of himself. Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. 1 Peter 1, 18-19. You are redeemed not with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish and without spot. And then 1 John 1, 7. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And then, of course, Revelation 1, 5. And I'm only just giving you a sample. I could, I could quote passages like this for a couple hours. Revelation 1, 5. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. All of Christ's sheep will be given freedom and deliverance from the guilt of sin and the misery, punishment, and eternal damnation that attends it. When you sin, that becomes part of your record. That becomes part of the mountain of guilt that you have. All those sins you've committed over your whole life going back to your, when you were very young. Sin after sin after sin after sin. Every lie, every impure thought, every theft, every unkind word, every mistreatment of every disrespect of parents. It's all recorded. There's a mountain of guilt. And only Christ can get rid of that mountain of guilt, that guilty record before God. Spiritual and eternal life is not a result of us working for it or trying to earn it 
or trying to be good enough to, to attain it or doing good works to earn it. Salvation by law-keeping or good works is at the heart of the world's religions except biblical Christianity. It's unique. It's unique. Jesus Christ achieved a perfect, sufficient, everlasting salvation for his people by paying the price for sin in full at the cross. He paid the price. That's what the word redemption refers to. He suffered in your place. He died in your place. He shed his blood in your place. He suffered on the cross in your place. Vicarious sacrifice. Paying the penalty in full. He fulfilled God's moral law perfectly in our place, and he rose from the dead victorious over Satan, sin, and death. The way to obtain this salvation is to believe in Jesus and what he has accomplished as defined by the sacred scriptures. God's declaration in John 3.16 is, Whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, eternal life. That's John 3.16. 3.18 says, He who believes in him is not condemned. As Paul says, Ephesians 2, 8-9, By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then Romans 5, 1, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, which of course is a gift of God that you receive when you're born again or regenerated by the Holy Spirit, is the instrumental means which is non-meritorious in and of itself. It's not a self-generated faith. It is your faith, but God gives it to you, by which you lay hold of Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished. You must not depend on your own works or look to yourself for redemption, but solely to the Lord Jesus Christ. You must trust only in what he has done for you on your behalf and regard all of your own good deeds and so-called achievements as filthy trash in God's sight. Okay, this idea that, you know, that you're saved because you're a good person and you're covenantally faithful and you cooperate with grace, which is a Roman Catholic idea, and of course it's the federal vision, that's a damnable heresy. It's all Christ. You contribute nothing. Yes, we're required to do good works. Yes, we're required to repent. Yes, we're required to obey God's moral law habitually as Christians, as disciples of Christ. But that contributes not one iota to your salvation. Paul says, and this is from, uh, this is from Philippians 3, 8-9. I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that he may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. The righteousness of God, the righteousness of Christ, a alien righteousness. It's not in you, it's outside of you. It is achieved by objectively by Christ and given to you as a free gift, imputed or reckoned to your account by God the Father. And therefore, on that basis, on the basis of his blood, on the basis of his life, God declares you righteous in the heavenly court. Now, a common question raised by the biblical doctrine of salvation, of course, is why don't good works earn favor with God and result in salvation? Well, there are a number of reasons why good works of law-keeping cannot merit redemption. 
Number one, the teaching of salvation by works, which is part of Islam and part of Judaism and part of Mormonism and all the cults, uh, is based on the presupposition, a faulty presupposition, that good works can somehow erase past sins. And if you read the Talmud, they speak of the Day of Judgment as being a case of scales. Uh, will your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds? Etc. And it doesn't work that way. Such of you cannot be found anywhere in Scripture. Good deeds do not erase past sins. They do not erase guilt. They do not eliminate guilt. Only the suffering, blood, and death of Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, eliminates sin. Only the blood of Christ can wash away your guilt. Good works cannot erase the penalty or curse of sin. Only Jesus can, because he endured the penalty in full for his people. He paid the price. Islam, Judaism, the cults, Mormonism, Hinduism, Buddhism. There's nothing that eliminates guilt. There's nothing that eliminates the penalty. For they don't have Christ. Here's what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 6.20. You are bought at a price. Therefore, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit. And then number two. Scripture makes it perfectly clear that due to our sinful natures, depravity or inner corruption, even our best works are tainted with sin. Luke 17.10. When you've done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. God, who is infinitely holy, perfect, and righteous, infinitely, can only accept absolute moral perfection in thought, word, and deed. This total comprehensive perfection has only been achieved by one man, the divine human mediator, Jesus Christ. Our Lord came to fulfill all righteousness, Matthew 3.15. Your good works are tainted with sin. I remember I'd be street preaching back in the 70s. I'd be street preaching and passing out tracts. And while I'm doing that, I'm lusting after the girl's breasts. Everything you do is tainted with sin. Everything. Number three. The Bible teaches that obedience to the moral law extends even to our thoughts, intents, and words. It is quite common for people not to commit actual acts of murder. Okay, I've never killed anybody. I've never shot anybody in the face. But with our sinful natures, thoughts of unjust hatred and anger and words of unjust anger are universal. Christ accepted. The internality of the law, and that's what Christ emphasized in the Sermon on the Mount. Similarly, many married men have not committed the actual physical act of adultery. But how many have illicit lusts in their heart or mind? Once we understand the internal application of God's moral law to our hearts, our thoughts, any idea, any thoughts of earning salvation are immediately eliminated. Once again, we see the necessity to look solely to Jesus Christ and his righteousness as our only hope of being justified before God. Your redemption depends solely on Christ. You must look to him alone for your salvation. And that is why Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, has a very lengthy section on the internality of the law. 
because the Pharisees believed they had earned salvation, that they had kept the law perfectly. And the Talmud says that there are many people in the Bible who perfectly kept the law, including Moses and Abraham. Now, you read the life of Moses and you read the life of Abraham, it is obvious that they did not keep the law perfectly. It's obvious. But their presupposition is the externality of the law. Make it easy to keep. This brings us to the question. What does Jesus mean by having life more abundantly? <clears throat> this is somewhat difficult in that eternal life is a gift that one either has or does not have. You're either justified or you're not justified. You have eternal life or you do not have eternal life. Consequently, there have been a number of different views as to what this phrase means. Arthur Pink believes it refers to what occurs to believing Israel at the second coming when abundant life in the full sense will be, will be theirs. I think that's probably very unlikely that that, that is what that means. J.C. Ryle favors the idea that Christ's coming caused men, and quote, to feel the possession of life more sensibly. And then he adds, to believing Jews especially, Christ's coming bright life more abundantly. In other words, now they have the new covenant revelation of Christ, and they sense life more abundantly. That's his view. Augustine and other church fathers believed it referred to the life of the glory hereafter. A popular view held by William Hendrickson and many others is that it simply means an abundance of grace, mercy, and peace. And the word, uh, the word uh, abundantly uh, is a word used in Greek for math of adding the outflowing, having abundance. In other words, Jesus brings an overflowing measure or a surplus of grace. I believe it makes more sense. And, you know, those are legitimate applications, obviously. But I believe it makes more sense to interpret life more abundantly in terms of salvation in the broad sense of the term, which is inclusive of sanctification and <clears throat> the covenant blessings that attend it. And this is essentially John Calvin's position who writes this. He declare, quote, he declares that life is continually increased and strengthened. Indeed, the greater progress any man makes in faith, the more uh, nearly does he approach the fullness of life, because the spirit who is life grows in him. And by that he means he has more influence or control in progressive sanctification. End of quote. The your justification, when you're justified by God, is instantaneous, perfect, and complete, and can never neither grow or diminish. You're either justified or you're not justified. It's an act of God. It's an instantaneous act that when you have faith in Christ, God declares you righteous in the heavenly court. But the progress of sanctification grows and is attended by the good, blessed life of following Christ. Covenant faithfulness and covenant blessings go hand in hand. And I didn't write it down, but there's a great, I think it's in Ezekiel, where God through the prophet says to Israel, hey, look, if you're willing and obedient, You'll eat the good of the land. It's a general principle that if you follow God's moral law and live as a strict Christian, if you follow God's moral law, you're covenantally faithful to the law, the moral law. You'll have covenant blessings. Now, examples such as Job tell us that there are, you know, there, there are bad things that happen 
to faithful Christians. We're not denying that. But in general, there's a reason that Northern Europe and America and Canada and these nations that were heavily influenced by Protestantism became the most prosperous nations. And that's the influence of the Bible. That's the influence of obeying Scripture. And this interpretation is supported by verse 9, where we are told that the sheep who are saved by Christ, quote, will go in and out and find pasture. They follow Jesus and are cared for and fed by him. They are like trees planted by living, by living waters that prosper and grow. Jesus gives the sheep protection, comfort, enlightenment, and refreshment of soul by his word and spirit. And the imagery is certainly related to Psalm 23, which, by the way, we sang today. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. Now, these kind of passages are especially important and relevant to people who live in very arid climates, such as Israel, at least southern Israel, and uh, places like if you drive through, uh, oh, I forget what state it is. I think it's um, Utah. You're driving through Utah, and you'll see this in other arid states, and you'll, there'll be a nice river that goes out of the mountains. And along that river, there's green grass and there's beautiful trees. You go away from the river, it's all dead. You might see some sagebrush. So spiritual life is totally connected to Christ. And then let's look at, uh, we're going to end there, we're going to look at some review and summary, just really quickly, because it's such an important passage. First, uh, our Lord's teaching is exceptionally rich, and we would profit by a summary of what we've examined, and there are a number of distinct teachings. First, Jesus says, I am the door. He states plainly that he's the only way to God. If you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. Second, he affirms that entering through him results in salvation. The one who goes to Christ is saved from the guilt, penalty, and slavery to sin. The only way to be saved from sin and guilt is to believe in Christ as he is revealed in the scriptures. Third, he teaches that the salvation consists in eternal life and all the benefits that accompany salvation, including sanctification and a blessed life here and the hereafter. Christ cares for his uh, sheep and gives them the Holy Spirit so they have guidance, growth, protection, and perseverance. Fourth, this salvation by faith in Christ is available to both Jews and Gentiles. And as we will read later in the passage, he makes this even more explicit. If any man enter, if any man believes, Jesus came to save the whole world and people of every nation or tribe. Fifth, False shepherds or teachers are spiritual thieves and murderers and robbers who are selfish and only care about themselves. Their teachings and practices have sent millions of people to the pit of hell. Now, I'm not saying that all teachers know that they're thieves and robbers, that all teachers know that they're teaching damnable heresy and are therefore selfish and wicked. Many do not. Many are very sincere, but that doesn't matter. They're teaching lies of the devil and they are on, they're covenant children of the devil. So let us meditate on Christ's words. Jesus is the axis of all true religion 
and our only hope of salvation. He achieved a perfect salvation for us that we must receive by faith. He knows us by name, and he cares tenderly for us, providing for all of our spiritual needs. He bears patiently with our weaknesses and infirmities. He leads us into green lush pastures and pure waters so that we grow and prosper. He guards and protects us from the assaults of Satan and his minions. And he bends our hearts by his word and spirit so that we continually hear and follow him. What a blessed salvation. Now for you, those out there, do you believe that Jesus is the only door to God? The only way to heaven? Do you trust in his suffering, blood, and death on the cross as paying the price for sin and guilt in full? So your record, if you believe in him, is white as snow. All of your sins are washed away. Have you repented of your past sinful lifestyle so that you can follow the Good Shepherd as his disciple? Are you listening to the voice of the shepherd by reading, studying, and obeying the infallible word of the living God? The children of this fallen world ignore him, lie about him, and even mock him because they do not listen to his voice or follow him. Instead, they follow the lying false shepherds of this world. Don't be a fool. This is the most important thing you're going to know, and that's Christ. Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. Believe in him right now. Pick up your cross. Deny yourself and follow him forevermore. Listen carefully to the Apostle Paul who says this. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That is important, beloved. That is important. You have to place your faith in Christ. You have to believe in him. And then once you believe in him, it's time to pick up your cross and follow him. Lay down the weapons of your warfare and flee to Christ. Now, let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your son. Without him, we'd have no hope of anything but damnation, suffering, ignorance, foolishness, darkness. We would be slaves of the devil, slaves of our wicked, pagan lifestyles. But you've opened our hearts by the Holy Spirit so we can see the beauty of your dear son. Lord, we want you to bend our hearts so that we are obedient to him, so that we follow him, that he's first in our lives, that he's first in all things, that we think about him all the time, we worship him as God. So help us to be obedient to your word and to recognize just what he's done for us and how important it is. In Jesus' name, amen.